This is episode 493 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Let me share some uncomfortable truths deliberately forgotten today in our land of apathy and opulence. And this truth may be hard to swallow for some, yet it is true nonetheless. It is a simple statement. Listen carefully. Persecution is an integral part of Christianity, so much so that it is to be expected and even desired. Why? Because persecution, like spiritual fruit, is an outward sign of a living and abiding in Christ in obedience. And if so, we must as a church and as believers living in the West prepare for persecution. Think about it. The scriptures teach that persecution is an inevitable result of wanting to live in the image of Christ Jesus. Consider the promise and the conditions of this verse. 2 Timothy 3.12 Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Did you get that? Desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I suggest you read that passage in context. And if you do, you will clearly see the focus of this chapter is that persecution is to be expected and not feared. Plus, remember that Jesus said this, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, only in the context of suffering persecution, and not in all the other activities we seem to fill our day with. So if persecution is part of the Christian life, how can I prepare myself for what is surely to come? That's a great question. So join with us today as we find out that answer and learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Hey, before I begin, I need to share something with you. Um, In our Christian life, we all have a tendency, or we all have had opportunities to have aha moments. These are these moments that uh, are kind of radical in nature. These blinders come off. We're able to see things from God's perspective. We call them life-changing moments. When we first get saved, we pretty much believe what we've been taught. If we go to a Baptist church, we kind of believe what the Baptists believe. If we happen to get saved at the charismatic church, then we have a tendency of believing what the people who we respect teach us. And as you get older, you have a tendency of looking at the scripture yourself and seeing if whether or not those sincerely held convictions or those the standards beliefs that you have line up with scripture or whether they're somewhat based on tradition. In my own situation, uh, I got saved and I was in a Baptist church and um, which is fine and everything was kind of rocking on. But in a in, in the standard Baptist view of things, at least in the congregations that I hung around, salvation began with justification. It's when I became aware of it. And by the way, it's all about me. Uh, I'm the one that decided to place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm the one that was told to consider the claims of Christ. I'm the one that you know, decided to yield my life to him. It was pretty much all about me. And so since it was all about me, it's only when I became aware of my salvation that salvation took place at justification. I prayed, maybe I experienced something, maybe I didn't, but I knew that the change had taken place and I was now justified and and we kind of rocked on with life. It wasn't until you begin studying the scripture a little bit deeper that you realize, for example, in Romans 8 that we've talked about 
ad nauseum that really before there was justification, God had done a whole lot of things in the past. He had chosen me, Ephesians chapter 1, from the foundation of the world, uh, Romans chapter 8, I was predestined, called, and now that I'm justified, where I become aware of my salvation, and then what I have waiting in front of me, of course, is glorification and sanctification between those two. And Anyway, I remember when I first understood that truth. It's about 25 years ago. I was sitting at a McDonald's in Pasco, Washington, about 10.30 in the morning. I was... Um, I've been studying. I've been asking a lot of questions. There were some passages that I didn't quite understand, such as the John 10 passage where it says, my sheep hear my voice, uh, and I know them, okay? And I realized the word no was not a cognitive no. It was like Adam knowing Eve. It was placing favor upon. It was loving and adoring. It was knowing experientially. And, and I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't answer the question did his sheep hear his voice because when they heard his voice, they became his sheep, that somehow his voice translated them into his sheep? Or was it because, like it is with us and our children, that because they were his sheep, they were able to recognize his voice? I know it was that way with Karen and our kids. I've shared this with you before. You go to carowinds or some park and there's just a as a male there's just a chatter of noise i can't even make out an indistinguishable sound here but for uh, for karen if one of her kids fell down and started crying she immediately recognized that cry can you mother say amen to that where does that come from because that was her child and she innately recognized that voice and I remember I was looking at Acts chapter 13, and I came to this passage where Paul was turning away from the Jews who rejected the gospel message and said that we're going to be preaching to the Gentiles. And so verse number 48 says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, that they were going to get the gospel message, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And here's this sentence that got the blinders off my eyes. And as, and as many as had been appointed... That's a predetermined act to eternal life believed. It did not say as many who believed were obviously appointed. The appointed came for they believed because God has, as the rest of the scripture teaches, had chosen them. And I remember sitting back at that McDonald's and it, it was like this, this wave came over me. So it's not all about me. It's about you that you truly are sovereign, sovereign in everything. And then all of a sudden, almost every passage I looked at in Scripture reaffirmed this truth. It was the same passages I read over and over again, that God doesn't leave the choice of anything regarding salvation up to us. What he does leave the choice is after salvation, serving him in sanctification. That is all us. Those are the verses that say, you know, you walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. You take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You put on the full armor of God. But, but God chose Abraham, and then God chose David, and then God chose how he wanted to be worshipped. He laid out exactly how the tabernacle was supposed to be built. He even described the stones that were on the high priest Ephrod. God chose everything, which is a long way of saying that I've had another one of those moments where something I've, I guess I've known, 
but I've kind of rejected because of the culture in which we live. It's always kind of been out there as an exception to the rule that God brought these blinders uh, off my eyes. And it's almost in every passage I look at, especially in the teaching of Jesus, I find this truth. And it is a most important truth for us today. And it's what I want to share with you. I want to begin sharing with you today. And uh, if you will grasp hold of this, it will help you immensely be able to forge ahead during the days to come. Let me pray. Father, I know there are inconvenient truths in your scripture that we just don't want to deal with, that we want to ignore, that just somehow are too convicting, too life-changing, and they just, they're unsettling. And so therefore, we, at least I, have a tendency of just putting those on a shelf or hiding them in the closet and hoping to deal with them later. But Lord, would you let us deal with them today? Would you, would you show us some things in Scripture that maybe we haven't seen before, but the reality of, of who you are and what you've ordained in our life? And would you conform us as always to the image of your Son? Lord, whatever happens today, we want you to get the glory. And I ask you just to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've shared with you, we've talked about turbulent times in which we live, and we've talked about this coming persecution. Uh, if Unless you have been blind, unless you have your uh, head up under a rock or, or your head stuck in the sand, everywhere you turn, every almost day on the news, there's something about white supremacists. And according to the media and the culture, if you want to know who a white supremacist is, it's you. Jew, it's evangelical Christians. And there's things going on in the church. There's churches that are being closed now overseas, some in the United States, pastors up in Canada who are going to jail. And it's only the tip of the iceberg. And we think that somehow that's an anomaly. We think somehow that, well, that just happens to those people. And what I want to share with you is this, this uncomfortable truth this aha moment that I had that I see almost on every, almost every teaching of Christ. And what I'm going to do today is give you kind of a flyover. We're going to look at a couple verses in detail, but kind of a flyover to show you this, that we have this truth out there that Christ has revealed to us. It was almost like I was having a prayer time with him. And I was saying, you know, why is all this thing stuff happening? And his response was, have you not been listening to what I've been saying? Well, yeah, I've been listening for 35 years, almost 40 years. Uh, what, what, what am I? No, you're not listening. It's laid out there. It's just laying on the surface. And because of our culture and because of the way we live and because of the opulence and, and apathy that we have, we have a tendency of not wanting to embrace this, that persecution is an integral part of the Christian walk. Almost like grace and love and forgiveness. I mean, we think it's something that happens to just some people, some people out there, some people who we read about in books, some people in other countries that are just not as smart as we are, are not as lucky as we are, or can't hire the attorneys that we hire. But persecution always happens out there to just a few people. 
we read the history of the church that was birthed and flourished on the blood of the martyrs, as they say. But that was back then. That doesn't happen today. We're able to come in our little holy huddles and we're able to do the things that we want to do. And if we just let the big boogeyman stay out there, they'll leave us alone. None of that is true. What you're going to find out today, and especially next week, is persecution is not only to be expected as a believer, as a birthright, but it's also to be desired because there are certain things that come with persecution. I want to know how how somebody's spiritual life is. Well, then you look at the fruit of their life. If uh, Jesus said a bad tree cannot produce good fruit and a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit. So if you want to know how someone's spiritual life is, we know that in our own spiritual life by the amount of spiritual fruit that we're bearing. We have no problem accepting that at all. But one of the things you're going to discover is the amount of persecution, the amount of blowback you get from the enemy, the amount of the people wanting to crush you as they tried to crush Christ is also a sign of obedience It's a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign of being light in darkness. So the darkness is trying to destroy the light. But if our light is not light at all, we're just kind of, I don't know, dusk. We're not really bothering anybody. We just want to let them leave us alone. It's a sign not that we're growing in Christ, but we're actually doing the opposite. Now, here is a... Classic verse on persecution. Um, And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this verse and we're going to look at it and we're going to use the tools that we've been studying to try to understand what it says. And the first thing we're going to do is just ask a few questions. Who, what, where, why, when, how much, and all that kind of stuff. So we can kind of lay out the verse so we're trying to figure out what it's saying. And yes, who? All. I need to know what that means. All. That's everybody. But is it everybody in general? Is it lost people? Is it saved people? Is it all saved people? Who is it? Is there some sort of qualifier here? Yes, it's all who desire. Not everybody desires, but those people who do desire something, they're included in this verse. All those who desire to live godly. What, by the law? By the the teachings of Joseph Smith? by my own set of righteousness? No, they want to live godly in Christ Jesus. All who have a desire, whatever that word means, to live godly in Christ Jesus, promise, will. Doesn't say maybe, doesn't say might, doesn't say could be, doesn't say any of those qualifiers in there, will guarantee suffer persecution. All right, well, that's kind of sobering verse, but if we're going to understand what it says, as you know, the first thing we need to do is read the verse in context. So let's do that. Let's try to figure out exactly what Paul is saying here so that we don't just take a verse out of context and set it up as some sort of proof text and it not necessarily mean what it says. So let's look at chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. This is Paul's last letter. This is the next to the last chapter of the last letter he writes to his beloved son in the faith, encouraging him and telling him what the future will be for him. And not only for him, but for us also. And here's what he says, chapter 3, verse 1. But know this, 
be assured of this. Don't forget this, that when in the last days, the times in which we live right now, perilous times will come. Perilous means violent, fierce, grievous, hard to bear, the distressing times will come. Well, why? Because people will be just like they are today. If you read these, you find out, I mean, this is our narcissistic, selfie kind of mentality here. For men will become lovers of themselves. Well, social media helps with that, doesn't it? Lovers of money. Boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, sum it all up, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And they think they're doing it under God's auspice. As a matter of fact, many of them claim to be Christians. They have a form of godliness, an image of godliness, an apparition of godliness, but they deny the power behind that. The Deuteronomy's life-changing, explosing, explosive power behind that. Paul is saying to Timothy and to the believers and to you and I, run from those people. Have nothing to do with those people. We won't take the time, since we're just reading this in context, to go through what these words mean, but this is the biggest description of woke culture I've ever seen in my life. For of this sort, verse 6, those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sin, led away by various lusts. They are always learning, always thinking they're smarter than everybody else, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The example he gives is Janus and Jambres, who resisted Moses. So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. They are not believers. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. Well, that's a bleak position. This is kind of how we're living right now. So Paul, as Timothy receiving this letter, what should I do? Should I bone up on my apologetics? Should I read books on church discipline? Should I be more diligent about prayer and Bible study and Bible memorization? Should I come to church six days a week rather than three days a week? What do I need to do? Do I raise my kids more in the fear and admonition of the Lord? What can I expect with a world like this? Verse 10, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, implied, carefully followed my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my long-suffering, my love, and my perseverance. And then he throws this word in there, my persecutions, my afflictions. He doesn't amplify the love he doesn't amplify the doctrine. He doesn't amplify the long-suffering, but he amplifies the persecutions and afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium at Lystra. What persecutions, second time he mentioned it, I endured, and out of all, out of them all, all the persecutions, the Lord delivered me. And yes, since he delivered me, and since I have suffered such persecution, 
all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecutions. There's an overplay of words here. In other words, I, I see how the world is in the first nine verses. And then when Paul starts talking directly to Timothy, directly to us, and begins lining up what we can expect, he doesn't duplicate any of the words, love, doctrine, manner of life, purpose, perseverance. The only one he duplicates and triplicates is the word persecutions and amplifies that with afflictions. It's like, why are you so heavy-handed on that? Why, why, why is that so important? Persecutions, with what persecutions I endured, implied out of all of them persecutions, and yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecutions. Something we never talk about. We never accept. We never expect. Because we live in America. We have freedom. Don't you feel the freedom? We have freedom to do whatever we want, to worship whenever we want, and unless somebody says we can't. Okay, I've read that in context. What else do I need to do? I need to understand what these words mean. I want to make sure that I'm not being confused by an English translation. I want to know the depth of what's happening there. So we take the verse and we begin defining some Greek words so that I can know exactly what this word verse says. Yes, and all. You can look this up yourself. Each, every, entire, with the idea of oneness without exception. All. That means every single one. It's not 99% or 98% or just a few. All, if they meet this qualifier, will suffer this result. All who desire. Now, here's the key, because not every Christian desires this. Who desire. What does desire mean? Well, to will, to wish, to intend. Those sound almost kind of, I intend to do this tomorrow, but it didn't happen. It's no big deal. But the word here, wish, implies active volition and purpose. I have set my face like flint. I have made a decision in my life. I'm going to get up and start checking off my to-do list. This is who I am. All, without exception, who desire to live godly. And the word live means to just pass your existence on earth, to live every day, day in and day out, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, to live and function and exist in this world, to pass your life, if I have a desire to do that godly. And why wouldn't we? What other desires should we have? I, I desire to live my life godly at home, live my life godly at school, with my friends, at work, in, in, when I go on vacation, whatever I do, if I have a desire to live my life godly. And the word godly means righteously or attributing to God the things that belong to God. And I do that in the name of his son. What can I expect? Will I expect rewards in heaven? Oh, yeah, well done, good and faithful servant. It'd be really good. And can I expect riches in my best life now on earth? Not according to this verse or to the example of the apostles or for Christianity up until the last 60 years. Can I expect all my friends to love me and like me? No, not really. What can I expect? It said, I will. That's a promise. 
It's not a maybe, could be, possibly, if you, if you desire it too much, I will suffer persecution. Listen to what this word means. It means to press, crush, distress. It means to persecute. Primarily, it means to be pursued by people that have enmity and hatred towards you. Well, why don't they just leave me alone? I mean, I'm not bothering them. Can't they just quit bothering me? Paul says, no, it doesn't work that way. I'm surprised he didn't put like his little disclaimer that he puts in other verses. Do not be deceived. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Well, not me. Yeah, you. Why? Because it's part of our birthright. It's part of, of, it's an integral part of Christianity. Not for us today, but for anyone who's living a kind of life that desires to be godly. Okay, so I've read it in context. I've defined the words. Now, what does it mean? I mean, what does it really mean? All right, well, easy way to do that is just read it again and emphasize each individual word. Like it's the key of the sentence. All. I'm an all. That means everybody. It means there's no exception. There's no second string. There's no plan B. All who meet this qualifier, all who desire, who literally wake up in the morning and say, God, I just want to serve you. I want to surrender my life to you. I want everything to be about you. If there's anything in my life that's standing between me and a closer relationship with you, if you'll let me know, I will confess it now. All who desire to live their life out in, in adoration to the Lord in the name of Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. Case closed, period. It is done. Okay, uh, I don't really like that because it makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like that because nobody wants persecution. Isn't there another way? Can't I somehow desire to live godly in you and people not persecute me? I not suffer persecution? Is that possible? Well, not according to this verse. Not according to what Paul's saying here. Well, maybe that's just one verse. Maybe that's not really an overreaching truth. Maybe that's just kind of proof texting something. Okay, all right. If that's true, then we can look at a couple other familiar passages, and maybe they deal with another topic other than persecution. For example, several times in the passage, Jesus always made reference to a master and his servants. If they've treated the master this way, they will treat the servants this way. And okay, I got that. But if you'll notice in John 15, this is right after the vine and the branches and abiding in him and ask whatever you wish and it will be done to you. And without me, you can do nothing. And all those wonderful verses, when you follow that on, assuming that you meet the first criteria, I'm abiding in him, he's abiding in me. I'm bearing much fruit for the Father's glory, so much so that I ask whatever I want. Jesus grants that to me so the Father will be glorified. I can't do anything without him. This is wonderful. And what do I expect? The verses that follow. If this is who you are, someone who desires to abide in Christ, live godly in Christ, look at what it says here. This is one of those if-then promises. John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. 
What was that? A servant is not greater than his master. If, if part, if they persecuted me, then they will persecute you. If they kept my word, then they will keep yours. An if-then promise. If the first condition's met, the second then part is guaranteed. If they persecute me, did they persecute Jesus? In horribly, continually. Will they persecute us? Well, that's what the word says. It's what Jesus said. That's all. Paul said it in his very last letter to Timothy before he died. Jesus is saying this right after talking about this wonderful abundant life you can have by abiding in him. Well, what happens if I don't suffer persecution? What if that's not my experience? What if everything's just going great with me? Does that mean that Jesus's words are false? Does that mean that he's lying? Does that mean that the all doesn't mean all? It, it only means those people in those countries. It doesn't mean us here in America where we're so spiritual that you know God would never let us suffer anything wrong. Or, or could the problem be with the word desire? Could it be that we don't really care? Could it be that our light is not that bright? Could it be that we're satisfied with lukewarmness? Not real hot to suffer persecution, and not real cold because we don't want to be like those people, but just kind of in the middle where they let us alone. On Tuesday night, we're looking at John chapter 3, Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus comes up to Jesus and he you know, gives him some faint praise and Jesus cuts right to the point, you need to be born again. Nicodemus didn't even understand what that meant. How does someone enter into the mother's womb be born again? I don't understand. Things that are spirit are spirit and flesh are flesh. How are you, Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel and don't know these things? I mean, if we tell you things of earth and you don't believe them, how are you going to believe the things of heaven? And so we read all of that until we get to John 3.16. And when we get to John 3.16, we have a tendency of stopping. But the conversation with Nicodemus continued. And after he talked about the new birth, this is what happens when you get saved, Nicodemus. And once you come to full faith in me, Nicodemus, when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, Nicodemus, when you fully become saved, Nicodemus, then you're going to understand the rest of the story. And all he talks about, it seems, from that point on to the end of his dialogue with Nicodemus is about condemnation and a, and a battle between light and darkness. Look how it's phrased. John 3.16, the verse we all know. Ah, oh, the wonderful gift, Jesus coming. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I want you to think about Jesus communicating that to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has a smile on his face. That's good news. That's the best news ever. It doesn't get any better than that. Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Ooh, that's kind of a downer. <clears throat> but that the world through him might be saved. For he who believes in him is not condemned. It's two downers at the end of this conversation. But he who does not believe is condemned already, that's three, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus, you're, you're negging me out here. I mean, we're talking about the new birth, and we're talking about incredible things, and you're up in heaven, you came down to earth, and, and now you're going to redeem all mankind and, and draw everybody to yourself and will never perish and have eternal life. And in the next 
three sentences out of your mouth talks about this condemnation. And then he says it again. And this is the condemnation. Okay, what? That light has come into the world. Me and you. And the light that lives in you through the Holy Spirit. But men loved darkness rather than light because they refused to live righteously. They refused to have a desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. So watch this. Because there's light and darkness in the world, as Nicodemus as, as Nicodemus is getting ready to leave and Jesus is finishing his conversation with him, he says this, for everyone practicing evil hates, hates. That's a strong word. word. We're not supposed to say that anymore. It means to detest, to find it reprehensible. And it implies active ill will in words and conduct. Literally, it means a persecuting spirit. That the world hates the light. It hates you, especially if your light is shining for him. And it will persecute you and torment you with words and conduct and deeds. Why? Because it's just part of the Christian life. We are soldiers to the king, of, we're enemies to the king of this world, and we're brought back in here to proclaim a message for our king who is going to come and usurp Satan and set up his own kingdom here. Why would you not think the enemy would hate us? For everyone practicing evil hates the light. Why? It won't even come to the light, lest its deeds should be exposed. By the light. Lord, what are you trying to show me here? I mean, I've read all these verses before, and I, you know, blinders begin coming off just a little bit. And so I started asking him some questions. And I just took the book of Matthew, and I just, it's always my go to book, and I, I just looked through all 28 chapters. And I started looking at the flow of Jesus' teaching. And I realized that almost every single message he gave, almost on every single chapter, he's telling them it's not about love. It's not about prayer. It's not about Bible study and all the kind of stuff to make you a better Christian. What I'm warning you about is when I'm gone, they're going to want to kill you. They're going to crush you. They want to persecute you because as part of a birthright, as my son, as my child, if they're doing it to me, why do you not think they would do it to you? Several times in Scripture, you find Jesus making this phrase. He does it in profound truths that really kind of change who you are. This is at the end of all seven letters in the book of Revelation and several other times times in the gospel account. This isn't for everyone. It's just for you. If you have ears to hear, then you will hear the message. If you don't, then you won't. And what I want to do is I just want to give you a quick survey, just three or four chapters in the book of Matthew and show you how this integral part of Christianity persecution that we reject as something that's not supposed to happen to us. It's you know, it only happens to people that are dumber than we are and, and people in foreign countries with oppressive governments, not like the government that we have, and media that, that doesn't deal things fairly, not like the media that we have that always deals with Christians fairly. And, and you know, um, 
legislative branches that pass draconian court of sort of laws and rules that fly in the face of our biblical sincerely held convictions out there, but never in our country where they pass those things against us, right? So let's just take a look at the book, book of Matthew. Now let's begin chapter 2. We all, we all know this. It's about um, Jesus, of course, being born, and the wise men come, and, and the first thing Herod does to make sure that this Christ child is not born, beginning in verse number 16, is he kills a bunch of innocent people. Do you remember? This persecution takes place. Jesus is not even aware of it. Joseph and Mary have to flee for their life because they have in their arms light, and darkness is already getting ready to destroy it. John the Baptist in chapter 3 comes up and starts preaching, and we know what happened to John the Baptist. He was beheaded because of that message. Jesus is then um, taken up into the wilderness, and he's tempted for 40 days by Satan. And when he comes back down, he starts collecting some of his disciples. Chapter 4, beginning in verse number 12. He preaches the same message that John the Baptist is preaching. Verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's walking around, sees uh, Simon and Andrew, calls them as disciples, sees James and John, calls them as disciples. And then there's a summary verse, summary couple verses, verses 23 through 25 of Matthew chapter 4. And this talks about the good things in the ministry. These are exciting things. These are the things that we want to be part of. And Jesus went about in Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kind of sickness and and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them all. This is great. This is wonderful. This is the Jesus I want to follow. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Boy, what a wonderful guy he is. He attracts the big crowds. He preaches messages that makes us feel good. We don't have to worry about what we eat. He multiplies loaves and fishes. We don't have to worry about being sick. He heals us. He takes care of everything. That's my Jesus. Who would not want to join something like that? Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus begins to lay out for them what life in his kingdom is all about, the rules of his kingdom. Someone hits you on the one cheek, turn to another. They make you go two miles, go or one mile, go two. Love your enemies, forgive those who deceitfully persecute you. Okay, I got that. And he starts out with this beatitudes, the stuff that makes us feel good. Bill feels good about ourselves. This is wonderful. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed. It's almost like Psalm chapter 1. And then he throws the downer in here. Why is this here? Why can't you talk more about the blessing? Why can't you talk more about bearing spiritual fruit? Why can't you talk more about singing praises to the glory of the Lord or starting ministries or building big churches? Or Why the downer? Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what he should have done is stopped right there because that's what he did with every other beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, here's why. 
Blessed are the meek, here's why. Blessed are those who mourn, here's why. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, here's why. But he amplifies this one. You need to understand what you're getting into. Blessed are you, not just they, but you. When, not if, they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Really? Yeah, rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And even if you want to view verse 10 and 11 as two separate Beatitudes, then you've got six Beatitudes that deal with wonderful things, and then he doubles up or doubles down on the persecution part. Why? Why? Well, just because we haven't experienced it, because it's an integral part of the Christian life. Then why is that? Because you're the salt of the earth. You're the purifying part of the earth. You are the light of the world. And if your light is put on a table so all the world can see and it vanquishes the darkness from the room, he told Nicodemus that that darkness will hate you. It will persecute you with a persecuting spirit, with active ill will, because you're exposing the deeds as evil. Finishes the Sermon on the Mount, gets to Matthew chapter 8. And now all of a sudden, we pick it back up again with the good news. Hey, Jesus heals the centurion servants. That's ah, wonderful. I've never seen such faith like that in all of heaven. That, that's incredible. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then he healed a bunch of people after sunset in, uh, in verse number 16. And then we have this cost of discipleship in verse number 17. I want to follow you. We have to understand what's going on. If you want to follow me, you're going to suffer persecution. You have a home. I don't. Foxes have holes and birds have uh, homes, but I don't have a home because it's all taken away from me. If, if this is what you want, this is how you follow me. He then uh, rebukes the winds and the wave at the, earth, at the end of, uh, of verse number 8 and then finishes it all by healing some demon-possessed guy. And the Gadarenes, amazing, this is great. This is the Jesus we want to follow. This is fantastic. Until we get to verse number nine. Now all of a sudden, verse number nine, they're accusing him of blasphemy. He got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiving you. Not discounting the miracle that's about to take place. This man blasphemes. Okay, fair enough. Then he calls Matthew the tax collector and the rest of the miracles here. We start finding out that, that now they're saying that he cast out demons by Beelzebub. That now they're calling him the prince of darkness, the lord of the flies. Because we're running out of time, I want you to look at chapter 10. Early in the ministry, Jesus decides to send his disciples out. And what he's doing here is he's giving them a picture of your and my life. They did not have the Holy Spirit in them at this time. That didn't happen until uh, Acts chapter 2. So the miracle working man was among them, and he's the one that did all the miracles. The disciples did, and they watched, and they learned like interns. 
And now Jesus said, okay, it's time for you to handle it yourself. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a picture of what it's going to be like, Acts chapter 2. I am going to give you my authority. I'm going to give you my exodia. I'm going to give you my, my authority like the Holy Spirit living in you so you can go out into the world assuming I'm gone because I won't be with you and you can do the things that I'm doing, which is exactly what happened when the Holy Spirit came to live within us. Jesus went up into heaven and now we have God himself, Christ living in us, and we're to be able to do the things that he is doing. And so the first thing he did was say, listen, I don't want you to get into petty little arguments. I don't want you to go talk to a Democrat or some woke person and get into an argue about something that's crazy. Don't talk to the Gentiles. Don't talk to the Samaritans. Let's make it really easy for you because this isn't about political affiliations. What this is about is you experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in you. So I'm sending you out, verse 5, do not go the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, you preach the exact same message I'm preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How, how do I manifest that? How do I, how do I express to them that it really is at hand? How does it become more than just words? Well, I want you to do what I'm doing. I want you to do what you've seen me do earlier in the book of Matthew. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to cleanse the lepers. I haven't done this yet, but it's not recorded. I want you to raise the dead. I want you to cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. And I want you to live Matthew 6.33 in your own life. I don't want you to worry about going on six months deputation to get enough money from churches to be able to support you on the mission field. I want you to do what I have done. I want you to provide neither gold nor silver nor copper for your money belts. No bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff. I don't want you to do anything like that. I want you to almost be like it was in the 40 years in the wilderness where I even fixed it so your clothes didn't wear out because when you're working for me, you're worthy of me taking care of you. A worker is worthy of his food. So let me give you some practical advice here. Whatever city or town you enter, inquire who is worthy and go and stay there. When you go in to the household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you or hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Because I tell you, assuredly, I say to you, you'll be more tolerable in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that city. Do you have any questions? Yeah, I do. Uh, I, I, I would. Is there something we say? Like to heal the dead? I mean... Is it, is, it, is it somebody that's like just died? Or what if they died and they're already buried? I mean, what if they were like, I don't know, all busted up really bad? I mean, I, I don't know what that means. And, and, and how much do we heal the sick and cleanse the lepers? And, and when we cleanse the lepers, do we touch them? Or do we just speak the word from them? So many questions I have about the stuff that you told me to do. And Jesus could have spent a whole lot of time giving them the mechanics of this. Or... If he told that to you, getting ready to go on a mission trip, wouldn't you go like, I, I can't do that. I, I, what, you crazy? What happens if I, if, no, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that unless you come. But he didn't. He didn't. He didn't tell them any more about that. Instead, what he told them is when you go out as light, when you live like me, when you model what the church should be, 
foreshadowing Acts chapter 2, you can expect as part of who you are persecutions. And he spends almost the rest of this chapter from verse 16 to verse 39 talking about persecution and how you're not to be fearful of it or run from it. Behold, he says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Okay, so who, who are the wolves? Men, but beware of men. For they will, not maybe, they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues, that you will be brought before governors and kings for my namesake. Well, why? Do we do something wrong? No, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when, expect it, not if, not maybe, not some people who live in foreign countries. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak, for it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit who didn't even understand at that time, the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So we're just supposed to be worried about governmental officials. We're just supposed to be worried about the court systems or the media. I mean, that's all we really have to worry about. We'll just stay away from those people. No. Brother will deliver up brother to death. And a father is child and a children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. I don't want to go on this trip. I'd really rather just stay with you. Why don't... Um, why don't I just hang around you? I'll carry your luggage and you do all that stuff. I don't particularly like what you're laying out for me here. I mean, what am I supposed to do when they persecute me? Do I fight back? Do I demand my rights? Do I hit them harder? Well, what am I supposed to do? When, not if, verse 23, they persecute you in this city, flee to another. It's not about your persecution. It's about getting the message out. For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Why are they treating us this way? Because a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for you to be like me. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. Okay, so does that mean like me doing the miracles that you're doing? Yes, but that's not what's going to bother you. What's going to bother you is the fact that if they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Well, what am I supposed to do? I have a business. You know, I want to just homeschool my kids. I just want to live my quiet little life. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Therefore, do not fear them. For there's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. So he tells them all the good things and ends in verse 15. And then he spends equally as much time telling them how scary it's going to be because of persecution. Is it just because they were going into a hostile land? Is it just because, you know, they were noobs and didn't know what was going on? Or is it because that maybe, just maybe, light and darkness don't mix? And when we become light, as part of being a Christian, we can truly expect in practical terms to be treated like our Lord. Well, if that's the case, I, just, I don't want to tell anybody about Jesus. I mean, I don't. I just, I don't, I don't want to do that kind of stuff. I've read stories about that, and I just, I just, I don't want to do that. I want people to like me. Really. 
Verse 27, you don't have that option. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Then I'm drawing attention. They're going to kill me if I do that. Yeah. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him. It's capital H in your Bible. Who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Will God take care of me? Well, yes. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but your very hairs on your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So we're coming to Christ, and this is what he lays out for us followers as being a follower of him. You have grace and you have mercy. I've forgiven all your sins. I'm building a, a place, a dwelling place, or I think would you a spot with me up in heaven. I will come and receive you unto myself. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. I'm giving you divine armor to be able to ward off all the attacks of the enemy, but I'm not doing it to make your life better. I'm doing it. It's actually going to make your life worse in this world. I'm doing it so you're going to be an uh, ambassador of me in this lost and fallen world. Well, what if I don't? What if I just want to be like the narcissistic church age that we have right now, and I just want it all to be about me? Verse 32. Therefore, who confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I know, Lord, but didn't you say that you were coming to earth to redeem the earth? Yeah, but there's a process in doing that that is war. Verse 34, do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come, quoting, of course, Micah here, to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those in his own household. Well, how is that possible? Because he who loves, this is phileos. This is not agape. Love's like a good friend. Father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Who does not take up his cross, his instrument of excruciating death, and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Are you excited about going with the disciples? And if you'll look at the next two chapters, the chapter after that, it seems like every time Jesus tells them something, he then says, persecution, persecution, trials and tribulation, they're coming. We reject that today. We live in America. We can come to church any way we want. We have churches on all the street corners. We come and we sing songs and we read the Bible and then we go home to our own little lives and our world, we're light and we're, we're salt. The world gets darker and darker and darker and we're powerless to do anything about it. 1973, Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton. You know, the Supreme Court ruled that human life only begins at viability. And we you know, complained about it a little bit in the beginning and nobody cares anymore. Nobody cares anymore. They take something that the Bible calls an abomination, homosexuality, and now it is the premier. It is the most honored sexual orientation we have in our nation right now. 
Now they're pushing the deal where pretty soon you're not going to be able to call anybody a he or him, or they're going to change all the Bibles that way. And, you know, you kind of self-identify as what you want. We're going to send our kids to school so that our, you know, 10 or 11 year old girls can, uh, daughters can, you know, take showers with 10 or 11 year old boys because it's just the way it is. And we say nothing about it because if we do, we suffer. If we do, we get persecuted. If we stand for righteousness, the darkness will try to stamp the light out. And none of us wants that. Even though we reject it verbally, we still want our best life now. I don't want to give up my job. I don't want to lose my house. I don't want to lose my car. I don't want to lose my standard of living. As a matter of fact, I want my standard of living to go up. I don't want to lose my retirement. I don't want to be like other people out there, like the Hebrews roll call of faith in the book of Hebrews kind of people. I just want them to leave me alone. They're not. They're bringing the battle to you. And you will either change or you will suffer persecution. And that's a promise from God. And the idea is the fact, since it's a promise, what do we do? Now, I'm going to just, in closing, just go through these 12 little points. You don't have to write them down. There's a bunch of scripture verses on, and we're going to develop this more in the weeks to come of how we should respond to the persecution that has always been there to those people who desire to live godly in Christ and will hopefully be there for you as you desire to live godly in Christ that the early church viewed as a badge of honor. Let me just hit these with you really quick. Fear God and not man, ever, ever. I don't want to stand before, I don't care what they do to me on earth, but I don't want to stand before him and have him suffer a loss of rewards that we talked about the last couple of weeks. I need to expect persecution as a Christian. Not only expect, I need to embrace it. I need to realize it's coming. And if it's not coming and I'm not experiencing, what's wrong with me? It's a promise of scripture that if I am an enemy of Satan, then Satan would do everything he can to crush me. But if my life makes no impact at all in his fallen kingdom, he will leave me alone. So if we're not suffering some sort of persecution, the problem is us, not him. Even during persecution, we have to learn how to have peace and rejoice. Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, singing praise songs to the Lord, suffering persecution greater than Anybody I've ever met, how about you? And Paul wore them as a brand of honor. I bear on my body the brand marks of Christ. Do you remember that? I believe those were the scars from his floggings. Even during persecution. Man, I'm supposed to, to be an example of Christ. I'm supposed to act like my master acts. And I'm supposed to love my enemies. Jesus was on the cross and basically said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. I'm to endure persecution and endure suffering with patience. One of my early heroes in the faith was a man named Watchman Nee. Watchman Nee was in prison for many, many years in China. And what they would do with Watchman Nee is they would put him in like a coffin box. It was like a, not much bigger than a coffin. And they would just set him outside in the sun and they would keep him in there for days and they would drag him out. And it got to the point that every time they would drag him out and bring him back to his cell, he would beg his captors, beg his captors, please, please, please put me back in the box. Why? 
because my fellowship with Christ is so sweet in there that I would rather stay in there with him than be let go and be freed. And birthed from that are books that he wrote that still impact us today. It's not about your earthly life. It's not about what we have or what we don't have or how we're going to live and the retirement that we have. It's not about that at all. We're here for a purpose. And once we keep eternity in view, everything else is pale in comparison. We need to learn how to worship him, not just in here, but privately. Truly worship him privately, no matter what happens, come what may. One of the ways to do that, if you were watchman knee, or if you were put in a solitary cell, I mean, how many verses do you know by heart? How much of God's word have you committed to memory? We started that up in here for a reason. And so far, had a, I've had a couple ladies uh, do it. I've had some of the kids do it. There may have been a man do it in here. I don't remember. Uh, I think Mo did one. Mo quoted a verse. Come on, guys. Come on. We're supposed to be leading here. And we're being led by our children and by our women to memorize God's word so that we can be prepared for whatever the Lord has coming our way. We need to spend time fellowshipping with other Christians, getting our strength from them, to learn how to love one another. And finally, as I've been talking about since day one, becoming a faith prepper, getting serious about God and serious about it today because we're running out of tomorrows. Now listen, I have been accused of being negative, being, oh my gosh, she's going to preach something about the end of the world kind of thing and all that kind of stuff. And, and okay, I spent a lot of time looking at that stuff. I spent a lot of time in the book of Revelation. I, that's just who I am. And I've always known these days were coming. And I've tried to prepare myself spiritually for these days that are coming. I am shocked at how fast they're coming. I never saw this. And I'm not, I don't want to say this arrogantly because I don't mean it that way. But I am probably have studied this at least as much as anyone you in here. And I've been expecting it and anticipating it. And it is blowing me away is how quickly it is coming. It's almost like this strong delusion of insanity that's crept over our nation right now and the powers to be. And you and I are now being positioned in the crosshairs under the phrase of white supremacists. And pretty much that will be subdivided as evangelical Christians and stuff of that nature as the crosshair of our culture right now. We're running out of time. Is there things to fear? No, no. But you need to get ready. You need to spiritually prepare and I hope that you'll get serious about that today. Amen? Let me pray.